So Alok is currently ITV News' science correspondent. Before that, he was at The Guardian. I've listened and read his stuff for over a decade now, a bit of an idol. He's a prolific broadcaster and writer on all things science. His latest series on BBC, he also presents television. He was just telling me about a fascinating series on scientific papers and whether we should believe scientists, which is a fairly controversial topic. I will be downloading that legally fairly soon. Uh, but his new, he's just finished uh, a series called Stormtroopers, the fight to forecast the weather. Um, and he charts the amazing history of weather forecasting, which is fairly topical. Um, his book, Water, the Extraordinary Story of Our Most Ordinary Substance, I've read it and I've interviewed him about it. It's a great read uh, and he will be signing copies of that book in the auditorium after today's session. Now, if you enjoy what you hear today, Alec will be talking tomorrow. He's got a session with Rebecca Priestley and Matt Vance uh, titled Tales from the Ice and that should be a cracker. That's at 3.30 tomorrow. Now, according to Alloc, water is the second most common substance on the planet. Pretty topical right now here in New Zealand after the contamination, the gastro bug in Havelock North with the water ball there. Uh, but also here in Canterbury, uh, where 70% of our groundwater is, fairly topical in terms of consents and rights. And look forward to some of your questions towards the end because the format is Alloc's basically going to uh, take us on a bit of a journey into water for 30 minutes. We're going to get moist, very damp. Uh, then I'm going to throw a couple of questions at him and then we're really going to open it up to you guys on the floor uh, and then we'll wrap up by midday. So put your hands together once again and welcome Alloc Jar. Thanks, Thanks Simon. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for coming along this morning, especially on such a windy, wet morning. I mean, goodness, walking to the, from the hotel to here, I was nearly blown into the street. So uh, you, you guys have an amazing weather. Um, I'm here to talk to you about, uh, I'm here to talk to you about water, um, something which you and I and, I mean, everyone has interacted with multiple times already today, and you will continue to do so. You'll probably interact with it more than anything else. Everything around you, from the clothes you're wearing to this building to electronics in your pocket have all been touched and made by water in some way. And despite all of that interaction, we almost never think about it. And I want you to think about it. And I want you to think about it not just in what we're using, but how, what the molecule is and how it's become such an important part of our lives. And I hope that my, what I'm going to do in my talk is give you a flavor of that. So my story starts um, with a journey. It starts with the journey of this man. And uh, do you know who he is? Some of you probably do. I always have to explain in the UK who he is, but I'm hoping that in this part of the world, maybe I don't. Does anyone know? Louder? Mawson, exactly. This is Douglas Mawson, the great um, Australasian Antarctic expedition leader. In 1912, he led the very first Australasian Antarctic expedition uh, with scientists and explorers from this part of the world, and he took them to Antarctica, the first one funded by anyone from um, here or, or in Australia. And really, he stands shoulder to shoulder with Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton as the people, the four men who opened up that continent. Until then, it was just a sort of mysterious place where weather fronts came from and it was a bit cold and no one really knew anything about it. And in 1912 and 13, these four men took expeditions down there to open up this place. And 100 years later, in 2013, I was given the opportunity to go on an expedition to retrace his, his footsteps, essentially and take the same scientific data as him. So he, as well as being a, an explorer, he was much more interested in science than the others, the other great Antarctic explorers. He was a geologist himself, and he wanted to understand the weather systems, the wildlife, uh, everything about this part of the, the Southern Ocean and beyond. So, you know, he was a real idol to me anyway, and so... I followed in his footsteps, and the idea was that we were going to take the same um, measurements with a new group of scientists to compare how that part of the world, East Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, had changed in the past century. And so, you know, here he is in his, uh, 
his Antarctic finest, looking very cool and kind of warm. And uh, just to compare to the 2013 version, here's me in my outfit, uh, just in case. And um, you know what? I, I have to tell you something. I don't like being cold at all. I, I just hate it. I hate being outside cities, really, if I'm honest. And I hate anywhere that's a little bit uncomfortable. I don't like camping. I don't like sort of really sort of uh, uncomfortable situation. I like sit, sitting in hotels watching Netflix, basically. And, and look, and this was, this was going to be a very odd situation for me. Although, still, you give an opportunity like this, and as a journalist, my whole raison d'etre was to try and go to interesting places. You can't say no, um, or at least you can't say no with a lot of thought. So I stepped on board this... A uh, ship, a Russian polar vessel, which had been chartered to go there. I stepped on board with you know, great excitement, uh, also fear, also a great sense of the unknown. And behind you can see in blue there, that's, that's the ship. And uh, so I stepped on there, and in the last, we, we left actually from Bluff at the southern tip of this country. And um, in the last few minutes of mobile phone coverage, I was obviously tweeting and Instagramming my pictures of what was it, what it was like, knowing that for the next month, for the next four weeks, I wouldn't have any internet access, well, easy internet access, and that, you know, I was going to be on this ship. And within minutes of being on this thing, about 10 minutes maybe, I suddenly realized that something wasn't quite right. I realized that I was incredibly, incredibly sick. <laughs> it didn't take long. And I was so sick that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even look at the phone. I had to put that away. I had to go and sit in my bunk. And the reason, of course, is, you know, you can see in this picture here. Just look at the horizon. Um, yeah, I know. The, the ship was sort of not, not right out of port, but, you know, soon in the Southern Ocean. was moving at about 20, 30 degrees each way, which doesn't seem like a huge amount. But when you're on the ship, it feels like you're going horizontal each way. Um, and especially because I'd never really been on a ship before. Uh, it, was, it was a completely alien experience to me. Um, and, you know, seasickness is something that affects everybody who goes, I'm sure, who goes across the Southern Ocean because it's such a, a rough, rough place. Um, and, you know, I was trying to find patterns in the movements and it wasn't working. I'd um, taken... Uh, some seasickness preventative measures. The pharmacist in Invercargill had said to me, take this patch which you stick behind your ear three hours beforehand and it'll help. And it wasn't helping at all. And uh, he, uh, he also had given me some other seasickness pills which he said, if you've still got sickness after about three or four days, then, you know, take these. But these are really your emergency pills. You shouldn't be taking these early on. I took them within two hours of being on that ship. <laughs> and uh, I fell asleep. Um, now, I was telling you, the reason is because, um, you know, you, you have some of the roughest seas in the world in the Southern Ocean. And many of you will know this, being on the doorstep of this ocean. Um, because at 50 and 60 degrees south, there's no land. Well, there's very little land all the way around the world. And so the winds really whip up all the way around. And um, they can create these enormous waves which toss your ship around. And it really made me appreciate how small we as humans are in this enormous sort of water planet. Just to tell you a little extra story about, um, you know, the, the, the seasickness and, and what it felt like. I told you about Douglas Mawson being a great scientist. He also was a very, very great explorer. And um, some of you may know this story, but one of the most famous stories he wrote about in Home of the Blizzard, which is his memoir of the uh, expedition, which I encourage you to read. It's a really, really gripping story. He talks about how him and his teams would go into the center of Antarctica to map the country, uh, map the continent, rather. And there's teams of three. And his team had um, a Swiss ski champion, him, and a British Army officer called uh, Belgrave Ninnis. The Swiss ski champion was called Xavier Mertz. And the three of them sort of went in a line. Xavier Mertz at the front, Mawson in the middle, and Belgrave Ninnis at the back. And they went towards the center of Antarctica, try and map it, take scientific measurements, weather measurements, etc. And after a few weeks of doing this, four or five weeks, um, they were quite far from their base in Commonwealth Bay, which is on the coast. And um, he writes in his diary, Mawson writes in his diary, about how at one point, Mertz stops and turns around and points over Mawson's shoulder. And Mawson says, we know, wondering what's going on. He points over his shoulder, so he looks behind him, and he can't see Belgrave Ninnis behind him. So they both rush back and see a hole in the ground, 
and then there's um, there's there's uh, they can hear dogs whining at the bottom, and they can, they've got see they can see pieces of the sledge at the bottom, and of course Belgrave Ninnis is now has fallen into the crevasse, and they shout down for two or three hours, and he doesn't respond. And of course, they're heartbroken at this point. They've lost their comrade, they've lost a fellow explorer and a fellow scientist, and they decide they have to go back. They can't continue on their expedition. And they also realize they have to go back because that third sledge, that third sledge had the best dogs and almost all their rations, which were now at the bottom of a crevasse. So they were in trouble. So they had to go turn back, and they were three or four, five weeks from their their base. So they start to go back. Within a few days, they run out of food. Um, they start eating their dogs. And um, one thing they didn't know, how could they have known, is that dog livers contain a lot of vitamin A. And if you eat a lot of dog liver, you get something called vitaminosis, and it's not good for you at all. Xavier Mertz succumbs to this in about a week and a half. He has fevers, hallucinations, and he dies in Mawson's arms. So Mawson's by himself now. And he has to go back. He falls down a couple of crevasses himself and manages somehow to crawl back out. He writes that he had to, every day, um, put his, the soles of his feet fell off. And he'd have to put them back on with lanolin and bandages and trudge backwards, back, 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 back to, towards the coast. It's, despite all of this, he still took weather data every single day and data that's really, really useful to scientists still today. Eventually, he made it back to a hill that was overlooking Commonwealth Bay, where his base was. And um, he got stuck there for five days because there was a blizzard. And so in the intervening time, he sort of wrote his diaries out and he carried on waiting. Five days later, he gets back to his base. His, uh, his team is still there waiting for him. And he had to get back by a certain time because his ship was the Aurora, had to go back to Australia. And if he got back too late, then the winter would have drawn in and the ship would have been stuck. So the ship had to leave by a certain time. And the day that he got back, he writes, he, his team sort of recognizes him eventually, looks after him, brings him into the base. You know, he tells the story of what's happened. But he also, on the horizon, sees a, a, uh, a puff of smoke. And it's his ship, the Aurora, which had left that morning to go back to Australia. So he had to stay in Antarctica for another year <laughs> before he could go back. What my point is, is that he is a really, really hard man. <laughs> and if you read his book, The Home of the Blizzard, you'll notice that the first four or five days out of, you know, I think he, when he left port in Australia, it's empty because he suffered from seasickness. My point is that even this guy suffered from seasickness. <laughs> And, you know, going back to my original point, the reason both of us did, you know, not to say that I, I talk about him in the same breath as myself, but I just have, um, was that our planet is a water planet. You look from space and 70% of the surface is covered in water. If, we were, uh, if an alien was looking down at this planet, they'd see uh, just as a blob of water with a few dry patches. And, and, you know, water is so important to what this planet is. It's uh, where life started here. It's, um, it's, you know, right now, it's rich still with life. It produces half of the oxygen here. And you know, it, it's something that drives the climate. It drives the weather. drives how coastlines work. I mean, it really is one of the most important things about this planet. Without it, none of us would be here. Um, in, in all mythologies, wherever you come from in the world, there is always some myth about water creating the, uh, the, the world and the people and the organisms within it. So you talk about the, in the Bible, in Genesis, uh, water, the, God moves above the still waters to create the heaven and the earth. And in so many other uh, religions and myths, it's the same story. And what I like about those stories, even though I'm not a particularly religious person myself, what I like about those stories is that those human beings, thousands of years ago who wrote them down, were trying to express something important about water as they understood it. They realized it was somehow special. We understand it through uh, physics and chemistry and astronomy now, but they were understanding it through the way they, what they wanted. And the thing that they realized about it or thought about it was that it was somehow heavenly. It had come from the heavens. And what I love about those stories is it's got a kernel of truth to it. Our water really does come from the heavens. 
It's younger than the rest of the planet, and it came from space. Now, let me take you right back to where. So this is a, this is a planetary nebula. This is the result of a star that has exploded at the end of its life. So when a star forms from hydrogen, it condenses and it burns because it fuses the hydrogen into other elements in the middle. Um, eventually, they'll run out of hydrogen, and um, if it's big enough, it will explode into a supernova. And what you end up with is something like this. This is a, something called a helix nebula. It's two and a half light years across. Much, 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 much bigger than our solar system. And it's 700 light years away. And what you're seeing is not real colors. They're false colors. Um, and but what the colors represent are different chemical elements that have been created in the star and in the supernova explosion that have just become clouds of dust and gas, essentially. Um, and this is where the oxygen that is in all our water is made. The oxygen is made within these stars, and it's distributed out into space in these clouds. All of the hydrogen, by the way, is something that was created just minutes after the Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago. When the Big Bang happened, for a few minutes, it was incredibly hot, and nothing, no, no elements came together. But then very few minutes afterwards, hydrogen, lithium, and a few very light elements were there in space. And that's where all of our hydrogen came from. And still, all the hydrogen that we have in the universe Comes, is, can be traceable back to the very first minutes after the creation of the universe. But the oxygen is created here. And in this cloud, you can see um, it's called a planetary nebula because this is where new stars form. New stars, a second generation of stars, will form in these sorts of places. But unlike the first stars, the first stars which created these, there's also now lots and lots of other stuff around it, silicon, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, just detritus, essentially. So the new stars, hydrogen sort of starts to fuse in the middle again. The new stars will form, but around it is lots of new, interesting material. And our sun, four and a half billion years ago, formed in a planetary nebula like this. And as it formed, there was lots and lots and lots of carbon grains and silicon grains, tiny, tiny things, you know, a thousandth the width of a human hair, these things sort of filled space around it. And on these tiny inert grains, oxygen and hydrogen atoms would sort of bounce around. Occasionally, they would fuse together. And when they did, that's, that's where the molecules of water would form. And all of the molecules of water on the surface of this planet, all of the molecules of water in the, inside you were created on these tiny grains billions of years ago. And over, it, it took a long time for each of these grains to get covered in ice. So slowly, slowly, they get covered in ice. And these grains would eventually attract each other um, through gravity, become stones. And those stones would attract each other and become rocks. And those rocks would attract each other and become massive boulders. And eventually, they would become planets. And so that's how the inner rocky planets formed four and a half billion years ago, you sort of get these grains coming together, rotating around the sun that was also brand new at the time. And our Earth, when it formed, when all this stuff came together, all the water inside those, on the surface, or inside those grains that I talked about, because it was so hot on the surface, it just evaporated away. So if you went back to the Earth four and a half billion, for about four, four and a half-ish billion years ago, around the time it formed, you'd see a really hellish landscape. You'd see volcanoes, it'd be hot, actually named the Hidean era uh, after the Greek, ancient Greek for hell. And it was, it was completely lifeless, of course. And you think, well, you know, you've got a planet, you've got these grains, there's no, very little water left on the surface because it's so hot. Where, but we've got oceans. Where did it all come from? Well, not all those grains and rocks that I talked about ended up forming planets. A lot of it ended up at the edges of the solar system. Extra material, if you like. And that stuff's still there now, by the way. Um, and it sits far, far, far from the planets. At something like four billion years ago, something disturbed those grains and rocks and asteroids and things. Something that maybe a planet or some other gravitational anomaly, something happened. And a lot of asteroids and comets and bits of rock that were left over just were sort of forced towards the center of the sun. And it's a time called 
the late heavy bombardment, when asteroids and comets were pummeling the surface of our Earth for 500 million years, just smacking into the surface of the Earth, and Mars, and Venus, and, other, and Mercury as well. Just, just, you know, real violent time. And each one of those rocks, asteroids, comets, other things, they contained a little bit of water, and they brought our oceans to our planet. They brought what we see on the surface. And so there you go. That's where all of our oceans came from. About four billion years ago, after this had all finished, we had our oceans. And after that, we were set for what happened next, which is the creation of life and the evolution of life. Now, these things, um, planetary nebulae, are some of those beautiful things in space, I think. You know, that's, this one I told you is helix. This one is the rosette nebula. This one, incredibly, is 50 light years across. I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine how big that is. 50 light years across, and it's 5,000 light years away. And there are stars forming in it. There are planets in there. Uh, there's, there's everything. It's, it's one of the most rich nurseries for interesting stuff to happen in the universe. Who knows, there might even be life in there. This is probably one of the most famous of the planetary nebulae. This is uh, the Pillars of Creation, also called Eagle. And it's 7,000 light years away and about four, four light years across. And interesting note about this one, um, which is that not only is it at the moment one of those beautiful, epic, sort of awe-inspiring things, uh, scientists think that there's been a supernova explosion in this in recent time. But because it's um, so far away, 7,000 light years away, we haven't actually received the light from that yet. So this doesn't actually exist anymore. It's been destroyed. Interesting, right? Um, so, that's that, so we now have a situation on our planet where the water has arrived. So going back to the expedition, we, um, about a week after uh, we left Bluff, and a few days after I'd got over the seasickness, um, we came to a point where we could see pack ice in, in the Southern Ocean. So this is the remnants of the previous year's Antarctic winter, of course. So uh, Antarctica grows in size every winter, doubles in size, sea freezes, and then every summer, starting probably around September, um, it starts to melt. And these bits of ice are very thin, and they're easy to sort of go, go through. And they're beautiful. They calm the waters down too, so there's not too much rocking going on, fortunately. But it does make everything very, very cold. Um, and you can see that they're the most beautiful things. They come in, you know, in an infinite set of varieties of, of size and shape and color. And as you get closer, of course, it gets even thicker. And eventually, every single day, the water gets colder to the point where it can support icebergs. And you and I, everybody here, have seen icebergs on television. We've seen icebergs in, in um, coffee table books. Um, much better pictures than this one. But seeing one with your own eyes is it's one of the most sort of uh, humanizing experiences because it makes you realize just how small you are, not only in the size of the ocean around you and the, the, the depth of it and everything, but how water itself can construct these enormous citadels almost, cities. These things are the size of small towns. This is almost 50 meters high, 200 meters maybe below the surface. And this, this is just an average size one. There are, more, there are loads more. And the shapes that they are, so they're shaped by the winds uh, and the water at the bottom, sort of slowly they're melting as they float into the Southern Ocean. And it incredibly, of course, this, these are the first pieces of Antarctica that were coming to see us. They were created by tens of thousands of years of snow slowly falling on the surface of Antarctica. And they form glaciers that creep to the edge, snap off, and then come out into the Southern Ocean. So this, these, these, these behemoths, these were older than all of human civilization. You know, easily 10, maybe 10,000 years old, maybe, maybe more. And that in itself is obviously remarkable. But what's, I think, even more remarkable than that, even more remarkable, is that, is that you can see this at all. Because if you think about it, what this is, it's a solid floating on its own liquid. And that doesn't make any physical sense whatsoever. Nothing else really does this. 
you know, if you think about anything else as a liquid, as soon as it solidifies, the solid sort of goes down to the bottom of that liquid. You know, if you think about wax, anything, wax, uh, um, rocks, even mercury, you know, this is not meant to happen. Solids are more dense than they're liquid, and they're meant to float down to the bottom. Water doesn't do this. And what you're getting with that is, that is one of the strange anomalies, chemical and physical anomalies about water. I told you at the beginning that we completely take water for granted. We don't really think about it all the time because it's so boring in our normal lives. But actually, when you study it, it's one of the most complex and strange chemicals in the universe. In fact, the most. And the reason that ice floats is because at zero degrees Celsius, the, the freezing point of water, um, the, the crystals of water, as they solidify, they're forced into a shape that leaves lots of space between them. And it just ends up being less dense than the liquid at the same temperature. And so it floats. So this is one of the weird things about water. Let me show you another one. This is a water strider. And it happily sits on the surface of ponds and lakes, and I'm sure you've seen them. And the reason it does this is because water has an incredibly strong surface tension. Um, the water molecule, H2O, hydrogen and oxygen, it loves to stick to things, which makes it great as a solvent. It will dissolve everything. Um, but it doesn't like to stick to anything more than it likes to stick to itself. A real narcissist in the uh, molecular world. And so when you have a liquid of water, if you think about, if you think about it, the surface of it, if something tries to penetrate that, it will stick to itself really a lot, and it takes a lot of energy to sort of force your way through. I mean, for us, it's easy because, you know, you, 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 when you put your hand through water, it's not like it's a massive amount of resistance, but for something small like this, it means that essentially water is like a treacle. It's like a, it's like a surface, that it, a trampoline, essentially. It can easily bounce along. And again, you think, well, what's the, what's the you know, water floats, so what? Um, it has a high surface tension, so what? These are two of dozens of things that it does chemically, which doesn't make any sense. It shouldn't really do these things if you look at the normal rules of chemistry. But if it didn't do either of those things, you would not have life as we know it on this planet. Over the course of history of this planet, the surface is frozen many times, uh, lots of ice ages. And if water froze like everything else, then lakes and ponds places where life was evolving, they would all freeze from the bottom and everything in them would, would essentially die. But the fact that water freezes from the top means that there's always, through the history of the Earth, been liquid water, always, so that any life evolving has a safe place. The, water, the ice at the top insulates the rest of it. So it's always had somewhere to evolve and continue, be continuous. Now, that means that we've had three and a half billion years for life to evolve into the rich complexity we see today. If water had frozen in this in a normal way, every single time we had an ice age, life would have to somehow start all over again. And the surface tension means that water can do some really incredible things when you put them in very small, thin channels. So the way that water moves from the roots of a plant to the top are because the surface tension allows it to sort of, sort of drag itself up. It sticks to itself. It drags itself up as long as the channels they're using, the sort of the capillaries, essentially, are small enough. So it's something called capillary action with tiny, tiny stems of water, and they drag, the water drags itself up all the way to the top of a plant because of this surface tension, because of this stickiness. This does the same thing in our bodies. Blood is drawn to the top of your head against the force of gravity because of this stickiness, this high surface tension. And inside your body's water does so many other things. I won't go into all of them. But if water wasn't there, then all of the proteins inside you, all of the DNA inside you, would not work. These things have evolved essentially to use the chemistry of water to do what they do. It, water even moves energy in and out of cells. That's why you get thirsty. That's why you need water to survive. And every single life form on the Earth, in fact. Because everywhere there is water on this planet, liquid water, there is life. And there is no life on this planet that doesn't also use water. Now, getting to Antarctica, you see plenty of water. I mean, this is all essentially ice-covered mountains. There's a, in the distance there, and beyond there is the South Pole. And in front, you can see the fast ice that um, is stuck to the 
stuck to the continent itself and, and didn't allow us to go any further. So, you know, this is the frozen, two, three meters thick frozen water on the ocean and then the mountains in the background. And this is, there's loads of water here, but you think, well, Antarctica really is the antithetical idea of the place of life. It's not meant to have life, is it? I mean, it's just a horrible place to be. And believe me, it's not pleasant. And I'm sure if any of you have been there, you'll agree with me. But there is life here, sort of clinging on. And the most famous being at the edges of Antarctica, of course. We, these are the penguins we saw as soon as we got there. This is the point in the talk where everyone stops listening and just looks at the pictures. So just look at the pictures in that case. So these are the penguins I saw. Um, Beautiful things. They live on the coastlines. They, they swim and they you know, eat from the, the water on the coastline. So here's, uh, here's some seals, Weddell seals, having a bit of a break from their hunting. Beautiful things. Do you want to see another penguin? Okay. <laughs> so they do exist. And if you go further into Antarctica, you might not see such richness like this, but there are certainly microbes and organisms that do live there. There are lakes underneath the glaciers of Antarctica that have, that have been isolated from the rest, of the, human, the rest of the world's evolution for millions of years, and yet they still contain um, cells and bacteria, you know, thousands of these things. And everywhere that there is life, somehow life has found a way of surviving. And Antarctica's cold and windy and wet and things in the bottom of the oceans, where there are hydrothermal vents, where water is incredibly, um, it has, it's, it's incredible pressure and huge temperatures, hundreds of degrees Celsius, life survives down there too. In the Atacama Desert, where it's incredibly dry, there are organisms that bide their time so that every time there's a little bit of water, they bloom and then they die back again and wait till the next rain, maybe 100, 200, 300 years later. The point is that life is amazingly capable of surviving in crazy, crazy places as long as there's water. So it makes sense then that if we find life in so many different places here on Earth, that we may find it elsewhere in the solar system and beyond if there are, you know, given that out there the situations and environment might be even more intense, but not necessarily more intense than some of the ones I've just described to you. Because Earth itself has many extreme environments, and we found that every single one of them has thriving life. So let me give you a hint to something at the end. This is the moon of Saturn, Enceladus. And Enceladus has long been known to have a thick crust of ice and then water underneath. And you can see here there are geysers of water coming out. And hopefully the idea is one day to send probes to, uh, to moons like this one. There's also Europa that orbits Jupiter. And they, they both are similar. There's ice on the surface and water underneath. And these planets, these moons, may contain forms of life because underneath the, uh, the ice, if you've got this water, some of the water might well be warm, so, and it's all sitting on rocks. And if you think about how life started on Earth, there's no definitive answer to that. But one of the best ideas is that they started at the bottom of the oceans where you have hydrothermal vents, hot water sitting on minerals, providing the energy and the ingredients to form this sort of this rich mix of what you need to form the first cells. The same situation may exist in places like this. And not just here, of course, in exoplanets, planets on other solar systems. And there are thousands of these that will be rediscovered. And the theoretical idea is that there could be millions, even trillions of them. So the chances of there being one environment where there's liquid water, where there could, uh, where there could be life, increases every single time. But the thing we look for everywhere is liquid water. Now, if you think of a liquid, um, it's most likely it's going to be water, whether you're thinking of blood or beer or apple juice or any of these things. They're all just water with bits of something else dissolved into them. And water is so common and familiar that we, we often think of it as completely mundane because we drink it, we touch it, we wash things and wet things and even immerse ourselves in it by swimming in it. But... Just think about it for a second. Have a look at, if you have some water, look at it now. This tasteless and colorless and odorless material, which has completely shaped the world we live in. I haven't even talked about climate and other things like that, which it does as well. Weather, if you think about it, is just water moving through the Earth's atmosphere. That's all it is um, in, different, in different places. 
you know, it shaped all the things around us. And I suppose we are interested in it and we study it because we're made from it. But isn't it weird, isn't it strange that this stuff that we are made from, that has made our world, is still absolutely and utterly still so mysterious to us? Thank you very much. We left some time for questions. <laughs> I want to see some more photos of penguins. Uh, I thought we'd have maybe a 10-minute PowerPoint with some soft music and we can all lay back, but I, I don't suppose you've got that ready. Hey, thanks, Alot. That's fascinating. Um, look, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and then I think we'll open it up to the floor. But I was really intrigued this morning on my way here um, and I thought about my own relationship with water in terms of someone that lives on the planet today. And I, th I was struck by the fact that if I want to go buy a bottle of water today, I can go to a dairy or a service station and I'll pay $3 for a bottle of it. It's more than petrol. And yet this morning I had a shower and as I was conditioning my hair, which I do a num probably twice a week at the moment, um, which takes an extra five minutes in the shower, which is probably an extra 10 litres of water, I didn't even think about the water I was consuming. And I realized there's a sort of disconnect for me as an individual living on the planet with my relationship with water. And I just, yeah, how's that gonna play out in the future when we have, it sounds like the quantity of water on the planet is fixed, it's fairly finite, and it doesn't actually change. But the quality of our water is a really hot issue. What's really most important about how our relationship with water as it continues throughout the rest of this century, um, we have done an incredible job as humans over the last few hundred years of pushing water out of our visible sight. So every single uh, one of us uses water in so many different ways, and not just the, the physical stuff I'm talking about, you know, the clothes you wear, the objects we have, they all have water footprints, but we don't see any of it at all. The food you eat all has a water footprint. And you move, you use th uh, hundreds and maybe thousands of litres of water every day. You know, it's not just a few on the shower. Um, so, and we, we, we don't see it. And we've done really well at not seeing it, which is problematic because it means that we're profligate with it. We don't think about it at all. Uh, and so that when someone gives you a bottle of water at $3 or, or whatever, you think, wow, this must, must be amazing. I'll definitely pay this much money. We don't realize that the other 1,000 liters we've paid cents for it, basically. It, it, there's no economic value to it, almost. And that's what we really need to start understanding if we're going to deal with some of the challenges we've got ahead. Climate change, which I briefly mentioned, is going to change the availability of water all over the world. So some places have too much. My country, for example, the UK already probably has too much, but it will have even more. There'll be floods everywhere, especially around coastal cities and things. Um, some places will not have enough. The tropics will become more and more dry. These will mean that cities in all of these places will be water-stressed in some way. And we haven't seen the scale of change for long for, in, in our life, in our generations. And so it's going to be very difficult for us to adapt. So we need to make sure that places that don't have enough um, don't waste it, don't pollute it in such a way that we start to, citizens have to move away somewhere else. And we need to also be ensuring that uh, places that um, have too much can, can somehow adapt their houses and other things to make sure that they're not flooded out. I mean, it's such a complex issue. Um, people have talked about there being conflict over water in the future. There will be. It won't take the form of, you've got this water, I'm going to take it from you. It'll take the form of huge mass migrations of people. It'll take the form of politics and all these other things. But water will be at the root of all of it. And uh, I don't mean to be on a downer, but it really is one of the most important things. And if we saw how much water we used, I think it would make all of us realize just how important this issue is going to be. Because at the moment, someone says to you, there's going to be a war over water. You're like, well, what water? I can't see any of it. So... If we were realising what it was and how much we used, it would just make us all, I think, take, make our politicians and ourselves take it much more seriously. So peak water, a bit of a myth, but actually... It depends what you mean. The, 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 as you said, the amount of water on this planet is fixed. So of the, of the water here, 97% of the water on this planet is in the oceans. It's salty. We don't use it, really. Why is it salty? Because it, there's a lot of minerals in the oceans. Uh, it's a good question, this. <laughs> there's a lot of minerals and rocks in the oceans. And, it makes the whole, uh, and these things are constantly being regenerated, and so there's lots of stuff coming out. So whereas lakes and things, there's, there's, less, there's less flux going on, and there's lots of more it, uh, water sort of evaporating and going to the normal water cycle. Universal solvent factor, it, it dissolves anything. It, it dissolves everything, it really does. Um, 
And um, it's actually very, very difficult to find water without stuff in it because it's so good as a solvent. Um, so 97% is in the oceans, it's salty. And then of the 3%, the two of those 3% are stuck in the ice caps and other bits of ice around the world. And 1%, 1% of fresh water is what we and all other life forms have used throughout all of history, recycling it endlessly. And we don't really need more than that. We, we, we don't need more than that. What we're doing as humans, though, is starting to use it not just for our normal lives, but also our products, cities, energy production, all that stuff, and also taking some of that fresh water out of circulation by putting all sorts of crap into it. So that it becomes... I mean, you know, we are small compared to the, the, the world, but cumulatively, you can start to see that the amount of water might be more difficult to get in individual places, like, say, for example, Christchurch. If you have a certain amount of water available and you pollute half of it, you've only got half that left. It's not going to come... Not, you're not going to suddenly get more, if you know what I mean. Just briefly, before uh, we get your questions, I get up at about 3 a.m., as I do most evenings, to uh, spend a penny... Um, I, just once at the moment. Um, I'm 49 years old, but I'm expecting to get up a couple of times in the future, based on what my GP's told me. Um, how long before I will actually be drinking that again, in terms of the water cycle? Because <laughs> um, there used to be a lovely myth in, that, you know, in London that the water in the Thames had been through seven of your mates it, on the tube or something. I remember being <laughs> you'd look around. I can't, and, I can't oh give you God. the actual stats. I mean, unless you want to just drink it there and then, which is fine. Um, Gandhi did, apparently. Don't, don't do it, apparently. Um, uh, I, I asked, uh, I asked um, uh, a doctor, the doctor who does all of Ranulph Fiennes' expeditions, about whether drinking urine is a good idea or not. He told me categorically, it's a stupid idea. Don't do it. You know, so those people you hear who are stuck in the oceans drinking their own urine, it's not good for you. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, water, can, you can say, let's move on. Simon. The water cycle it, you know, can be as quick as a few days. So if water is in the surface of, an, uh, of, a, of a lake or an ocean, evaporates, goes you know, into a cloud, and then it floats down into, uh, over land and rains, it could, that could happen over a few days. It could be a week. Or it could be as long as a million years. Because at some point, say, for example, it, it rains down onto the, onto the ground, it gets trapped in an aquifer for a million years before it comes out again. Or, more interestingly, it gets trapped in a human being, goes around us for a certain number of days, weeks, maybe months, and it comes out. But yes, every molecule of water, <laughs> the, the statistics are that if you drank in that glass of water, because there are so many molecules in there, that at least a few of them would have gone through Napoleon uh, uh, and dinosaurs, probably, definitely, I'm pretty sure. All of this stuff. I mean, you know, this, but then that's just pure statistics, because it goes round and round and round. never gets destroyed, never really gets created either. So it's the same stuff. Brilliant, thank you. Okay, I do think we have a roving mic, so if you have a question for Alot, then whack your hand up and we'll try and get a, a microphone to you. If you haven't, I've still got loads of questions, so, uh, but it would be nice to hear from you guys. No, no, I mean, let's face it, water's a fairly topical issue here in Canterbury. Chap here on the front, that's $10 for the first question, sir. Thank you very much. This is a fundraiser. Do you see a big role for um, desalinization? desalination? Uh, you know, right now, desalination, which is the process of taking salty water and extracting drinkable water out of it, it does, it's a technology that works, and in the Middle East they use it, and in California also. Uh, it's also used in parts of London, as far as I can gather as well. It's very, very expensive, economically and also from an energy point of view. So you need a lot of energy to boil up all that water and, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it's possible, but it's way more expensive than other forms of... other cheaper ways of cleaning up your water and keeping it in a sensible state. We don't need to do it, but if we get to a point where we've polluted lots of our water or it, water, becomes, water processing becomes so expensive, then, yeah, economically, desalination might become a thing. Uh, and I suppose it goes back to my point that we're never going to run out of water on this planet. It's just going to get more difficult to access easily in the places we want. In other words, we've built cities, huge cities, in certain places. If those places become stressed, we can't just move the city. So then it becomes about economics at that point. Thank you. Hello, thanks for coming down under. Um, and I hope you feel um, that, well, I was born in England, but 
I live in New Zealand and I hope you feel that there's still some connections that might be able to be re-enlivened after your decision to become your own masters again. Um, I was wondering, is there any technology which politicians could use to say, look, we can create with the science new water? Um, to be honest, we have so much of it. As I said, 97% of the Earth's water is still in the oceans, and we've nowhere near touched that. So desalination, for example, is a way of increasing the 1% of fresh water on the planet. But even that 1% is still a lot of water. Um, and even if you tried to create new water, and water is created in many chemical reactions. If you burn hydrocarbons, for example, you get water out. But that's really a bad way of creating water, because <laughs> you get there's so many side effects of that. So I don't think we need to go down that road. Um, you can also just burn hydrogen, but hydrogen by itself is very hard to get hold of. There's just so many other complicated reasons why it just doesn't seem like a sensible thing to do. There is lots of water on this planet. It's just everywhere. And if we manage it properly, we, we don't need to create it from elsewhere. The point is, though, I don't think we are managing it properly. And I that's, guess... That's my point. <laughs> the critical thing is, can we remediate what we are doing here? We seem to have, you know, depending on the political climate of the day, we have this tension between economics and the environment, and that bar moves up and down. Mm -hmm. And in the scenario where you are maybe making legislative or resource changes for certain waterways to allow certain activities, i.e. farming, to take place, um, and you degrade that particular waterway, and we know that the web of life is complex, and eels may move through that waterway to get to these higher waters that are, have a different status. How, how's that going to play out? Can we actually go back to some of these waterways and remediate? Have you been anywhere on the planet where you said, well, this is a really good example where they've completely screwed up their local water resources and they've actually remediated them? I think it comes down, once again, to not seeing the water availability. So, you know, farmers, for example, are obviously people who know that water and water access is incredibly important for what they do. They can't grow anything or have any livestock if water is not there. And so water rights are something really important to those communities. And um, if we weren't living in cities and you know, when we were more, probably more rural folk, um, we'd understand that. We'd understand water rights. We'd understand the need to make sure that we don't essentially pollute the wellspring of our entire life and existence. By living in cities, we don't see any of that stuff. So it's very easy to make decisions that have effects miles away that we don't see. It's a general environmental problem where living in cities is incredibly modern and clean and all these things that we, we do as humans, but we don't see the effects of all of it on the natural world. And that's everything, not just water, but also you know, general uh, biodiversity and ecology. We don't see the effects of it. Um, I, in terms of your other question about where this has been a problem, I mean, you look at many places around the world where water courses, water tables have been either dug dry People have been t taking water out of aquifers and creating place places where there's, there's complete drought. Take California, for example. Uh, incredibly badly managed water because what they do is um, they, they haven't quite squared the fact that their agricultural uh, crops take up lots of water and then they export it everywhere else. Their oranges and other things they grow, they take them and export them elsewhere, not leaving enough for people who are living there to actually live. Um, and, and water, uh, food, for example, is one of the most important and unseen ways that you take water out of your community and send it elsewhere. You're just sending water away. Um, bad planning in terms of sewagery, for example, will pollute your water. You've had problems of that here. Um, we've, in, in the north of England last year, where my parents live, and they had something similar where for several days they had to boil their water. It's a huge problem. They suddenly realized, hang on, if I turn the tap, this could kill me now. This is something they never thought about before. And I'm not suggesting that this is something that um, you need to force people to think. But we just have no concept of where this stuff comes from. And I do worry that there aren't enough conversations going on to make people politically care enough about any of this. And unless you have problems like the one you faced, where maybe citizens start to give a shit, then it's easy for politicians to just go, you know what, we'll just sign away these water rights to somebody else, or give it to a corporation, or give it to people, to other people who don't actually live here. And then you're stuck. You have to leave. There's nothing you can do. 
Finally, we have time for one positive question, uh, something really, you know, about tomato growing and huge crops or something positive. Let's end on a high note. Uh, there's a lady, oh no, sorry, oh, sorry. You had your hand up. The challenge of a positive question. <laughs> I was going to ask a negative one. No, I'll ask a positive one. Um, in, in, in covering the challenging social, uh, social issues, how do you deal with, with, what are the challenges of getting across the complicated matters to a diverse uh, audience, multiple different values, different perceptions, hard science and so forth. What is the challenge, the biggest challenge there and what's the solution to that? Uh, you mean in terms of communication? Well, it, you, you can answer this as well. I mean, the thing, the thing is, I'll tell you what I think, which is, as a journalist, you're always told to find out what your audience cares about, what it is that they moves them in some way, emotionally, whether it's showing them pictures of the, of the um, stars and they get, they're, they're in awe about it, they're, they're, they love the fact that we know these things or see beautiful pictures. But more importantly than that, most people care about their lives and their families and food and these sorts of things. Maybe not every single day, but that's what moves them. And I think addressing those things is um, often very difficult without being always negative and kind of nasty about it. So all the things we talked about, polluted water, lack of availability of water in your community, this is going to affect you and your family, uh, how your food is available, how, how much it costs for you to um, take, a, take a shower, how much it costs for your food, in fact, and uh, whether there are jobs available in certain places. And the, the challenge for me always is to not say the same thing again and again and again and again. Say, look, this, there's a problem over here, it's just going to make all your groceries more expensive. People phase out at that sort of thing. The challenge is always to not be always negative. Unfortunately, it's, an, it's a bit of a scary story. And I don't know if I've solved it myself, and I'm not sure that anyone has. And unfortunately, people are much more interested in sensational politics and other things than they are in what can often be very dour and frightening stories about our environment. We are doing some terrible things to our environment. And it's very difficult to tell people about it without them going, you know what, I've had a really bad day, I don't need to hear about this. My argument is always, you're going to have a much worse life if you don't listen to this. But it's really tough to tell people that. And I appreciate that. Sometimes I don't want to listen to it myself. <laughs> Simon, you've, maybe you've got better ways than me. Yeah, well, I, I mean, um, from my perspective, it's really about, I think, finding stories that sort of illustrate and shine a light on the different aspects. And that's, I guess, what I try and do as a, a, a science communicator. It's not really what I think or, or my views. I try and, you know, as a public broadcaster, it's not really about me and what, what I think. It's about the people that I meet and trying to actually get honest uh, perceptions feedback on, on the situation and try and represent a range of, of those thoughts. So, yeah, sorry for a very wishy-washy answer, but, um, yeah, it's not really about me. It's, uh, it's about you guys, really, so... No, Kura, thank you for that. Um, and on that note, I think I'm going to wrap up and say thank you so much for coming along today, making the effort to get out here and cover yourselves in water. Um, uh, and as I said, Alec will be speaking tomorrow at 3.30 uh, with a session that I recommend you get along to, Matt Vance and Rebecca Priestley. But uh, thank you very much. And put your hands together for Alec Jarre.